Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 123 of the GDPR Weekly Show, our final episode for 2020. And just a reminder, there will not be an episode of the show next weekend, but we will be back on the 3rd of January 2021. So coming up in this week's episode... We look at vaccinations and should you record details of your employees' COVID-19 vaccinations? And indeed, can you? We then look at the education sector and school COVID-19 tests, which were announced by the government on the last day of term. And so many schools will not yet have had a chance to think about the preparations for January. So we have news for schools there and what you need to do here in the UK, your UK school, to be ready for the new term when it begins on the 5th of January. And we then have further updates from the Department of Health and Social Care on its handling of COVID-19 data. We then move away from COVID-19 to Brexit and the news that Facebook is moving all of its UK user data from Ireland to California. We then have a very special interview, an interview we've been trying to tie up for a while here on the GDPR Weekly Show, with Dr. Jackie Taylor. In an increasingly chaotic and disruptive world of technology, Dr. Jackie Taylor is one of 2019's global leaders and a top 10 global Internet of Things innovator. She doesn't just predict the future, she engineers it. Jackie has positively impacted the lives of over one third of the world's population. 34 million citizens globally collaborate in her cutting edge research. Today, as one of the six data protection practitioners of excellence recognised by the UK ICO, I'm extremely pleased to welcome Jackie to the GDPR Weekly Show and please do listen to that interview. It's a fascinating discussion and also at the end of the interview you'll have news of a very exclusive giveaway but you'll need to listen to the interview to find out the details but let's just say that the information to be released at the end of the interview has only previously been released to delegates at the World Economic Forum. We then have a reminder of the third country status for the UK after January the 1st and what you must do if you have either data moving to or from the EU or indeed you just hold information on EU citizens. We then travel to Ireland where we have news of the penalty imposed on Twitter by the Irish DPC. We then travel to Scotland with news of a data breach at energy provider People's Energy and then to Norwich with details of a data breach at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital. We then travel back to Scotland where victims of the Scottish Ambulance Service data breach, which we brought to you previously on the GDPR Weekly Show, are claiming that they've been left totally unsupported by the Scottish Ambulance Service. We then travel to Sweden, where a Swedish university has been fined for a data breach. And then to Canada, where we have an update on the data breach at Desjardins. And then finally, since it is Christmas, a light-hearted article on Is Father Christmas GDPR Compliant? So a real bumper episode this week. We hope you find the information useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. Stay home, stay safe. We begin this week with thoughts that as vaccinations begin to roll out across the UK, and of course as time goes on and the weeks and months go on, those vaccinations will spread into younger and younger people and therefore affect the workforce of organisations and companies in the UK. We turned our mind to, and in fact our help desk was asked to advise on, what data employers should hold about employees of theirs or members of an organisation where you're, we have a club or whatever, 
who've had the vaccination. Because on the one hand, you can argue that having that information is useful to you as an employer or as an organiser. But on the other hand, do you hold in your employer records whether they've had the MMR vaccination? For those where it's appropriate, do you hold in your records that an employee has had the flu vaccination? If the answer to that is no, which I suspect for most companies will be true, then why should COVID be an exception to that and you should hold data about when people have their COVID vaccination? After all, the COVID vaccination is only 90% effective and whilst 90% is fantastic, it still leaves 1 in 10 who still have the vaccination and potentially could still catch COVID or indeed could still be a spreader and indeed we don't even know for sure yet whether people who've had the vaccine can still be spreaders of COVID-19 or not. So if you are going to record that your employees have had their COVID vaccination, and hopefully that will be a growing number week by week as we move through 2021, do consider the reasons that you're holding the data and how long you're going to hold it for. Because that someone's had a vaccination is medical data, therefore it falls into the special category of GDPR data, and therefore you do need a special justification as to why you are holding that data about any individual. What are you going to do with it? So make sure that you carry out a data privacy impact assessment on that decision to store the data of people who've had the vaccination and make sure that the balance of weight holds true, that the balance to you of holding the data outweighs the risk of having that data when you shouldn't. And that's going to be a one-for-one decision. That's going to vary from one organisation to another. Because you could argue that holding the data is done because... You're protecting your interest of your business. More importantly, perhaps, you could argue that it's in the vital interest of the other employees who work for you. We're going to return to this subject early in January because it's very much still in a state of flux. And we're not at this stage able to give you concrete guidance. But our advice at the moment would be only hold details that your staff have been vaccinated against COVID-19 if you are confident in your own mind that you could justify why you're holding that information. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. Another COVID issue now, and that's the whole issue of how schools should be conducting tests on their teachers and their pupils on when school resumes, at the moment at least, planned for early January 2021. So a few questions and we hope a few answers as well. Why are the government introducing these tests? Well, because according to official statistics, attendance in state-funded schools reduced to a low point of 83% during the autumn term. And although it started to recover, there's still a significant number of pupils who are off school isolating when perhaps they don't need to be because although a member of the class or learning bubble has had a COVID infection, they may be totally clear. But at the moment, the rules are that they have to stay off school for 14 days and of course all the trauma that that causes to the parents and to the children too because it's been established that children do learn much better when they're in the classroom. So who's going to be tested? Well, teachers and other staff will be able to be tested every week and staff and pupils who've been in close contact with someone who has tested positive will be able to be tested for seven days without having to self-isolate unless they also receive a positive test. One important point is that the tests are not compulsory. Although the government says that they are strongly encouraged to participate to reduce the risk of transmission within schools and colleges, it's free of to any pupil 
or the parents of a pupil if they're under 13, or indeed to any teacher to refuse to take the test. However, if they haven't taken the test, then they will need to self-isolate for 10 days if they believe they've been in close contact with someone with the virus. Now, how teachers and people's consent is also important. Teachers can consent by completing an appropriate consent form. But then mind you'll need two separate forms, one for the weekly testing and one for the serial testing component of the programme. The guidance issued by the Department of Education very late on the final school day last week contained a link to a consent template and privacy notice. However, these links don't appear to go anywhere at the moment. So hopefully the government will quickly get those documents there. If not, please get in touch with our help desk here and we'll be very pleased to get some sample forms over to you. Just a reminder, the contact address is helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. So that's the teachers, but the position with regard to children is more complicated. If the child is over 13, and if you're confident that the child is able to make their own logical decision, then you just have a consent form like you do for the teachers, and the child themselves can decide whether they wish to sign it or not. However, we recognise that people and children mature at different rates, and therefore the ICO guidance says that in some contexts you may be able to make an individual assessment of the competence of a child. However, if you aren't in a position to make this kind of assessment, then you should at least take into account the age of the child and the complexity of what you ask them to understand. And if you believe they don't understand what they're signing, then you really shouldn't get them to sign it. You should ask their parent or guardian to sign it on their behalf. And again, it's totally free for the parent or guardian to refuse to sign. There's nothing you can do. You can't say you must sign this. You just have to try and persuade them that it's the best course of action. It's also, of course, very important that you have a privacy notice which you make available to your pupils. And I suggest your privacy notice is probably going to need updating to reflect these latest tests because probably at the moment there's no word about medical tests in it. But you do need to have a privacy policy which you make available to those pupils and staff who are giving their consent. That privacy policy can either be on your website or what we would also recommend is that you print a copy and laminate it so that someone who might have a last-minute decision can sit and read it whilst you're preparing for them to have a test. What's not quite clear at the moment is who's going to administer the tests, because the government recognise that teachers already have a lot to do, and so it's thought that they will recommend to head teachers that alternative staff are used, but whether that means teaching assistants, or what that generally means, new staff, is unclear. But either way, the head of the establishment is going to have to appoint appropriate people to undertake the following seven roles. A quality lead or team leader who is responsible for the overall on-site preparations. Test assistants who provides guidance and supervision to pupils and other staff members on swabbing and collects the samples. Processor who prepares the test samples for analysis, conducts the processing and interprets the result. A COVID coordinator who schedules testing and makes sure that anyone who is tested has agreed to it. A registration assistant is responsible for giving out tests and the smooth running of the test site. A results recorder who collects the results and uploads them onto the system. And a cleaner who correctly disposes of all clinical waste and makes sure that they sanitise the area, etc. The government has said that the same person can do more than one of these roles and that leaders can draw on volunteers such as parents, retired teachers, Red Cross and John Ambulance and community organisations to help. It's also said that additional funds have been made available to reimburse schools and colleges for their reasonable costs. It's not entirely clear at this moment how generous this will be, and organisations may be out of pocket if they take on additional temporary staff to assist them. For example, the Association of Colleges has estimated that the average cost of testing would be £75,000 per college per month. Training will be available via online platforms and varies in length from 30 minutes to 2 hours. 
it's not yet clear whether the results recorder has to input the test results into their school or college system or some separate system. But either way, the processing of data must comply with GDPR and the rules on processing special category data, which means you have to identify the lawful basis you're relying on for monitoring the data, update your privacy notice, and don't retain information longer than necessary. The guidance suggests all results should be deleted after 14 days. With regard to the legal basis, the guidance from the Department of Education is that schools can rely on safeguarding to process this data. But those statutory provisions refer only to maintained and unmaintained schools rather than colleges, and also in a grey area there are academy trusts. An academy trust may well instead rely on the fact they are carrying out the processing to perform a task carried out in the public interest. With regard to where the test will be carried out, the test must be carried out on site and must follow the requirements set out in the guidance. These require a room which is well lit, has good ventilation and non-porous flooring, so you can't use a room that's got a carpet. The room has to be big enough to contain a registration desk, a swabbing bay and a recording desk. Each area has to be clearly demarcated and people being tested mustn't enter the processing area. There has to be a one-way travel and the usual social distancing requirements must be followed. Webinars will be recorded to help schools and colleges properly set up their areas. And then the tests have to be stored between 2 degrees and 30 degrees Celsius. The tests themselves will be the lateral flow tests, which anyone here in the UK will probably have seen by now on television. These deliver results in 30 minutes and don't need to be sent to a lab. Anyone with a positive test result must self-isolate and get a second test by the free NHS service that will be processed in the lab. So do you need this ready for the first day that you're back at school? Well, no, but you do need to be thinking about it now because the government takes the view that whilst there's no expectation that school and college staff will need to work on this over the Christmas break, they are saying that everything should be set up within five days of the start of term. To allow for that, the government is also saying that secondary schools and colleges should delay opening for one week to all students apart from year 11s, year 13s, children of key workers, those deemed vulnerable and those in exam years. During this staggered return period, schools and colleges will also have to provide remote education. If you if you are from a school or college and you need help with any of this, please do contact us via the details which are coming up at the end of this article. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. The Department of Health and Social Care have issued further guidance in how they handle the data provided in response to COVID-19 testing and also the COVID-19 app. They recognise that the testing and the app generate special category data defined by Article 9 of GDPR and Schedule 1 of the Data Protection Act 2018. They point out that they process a special type of data in accordance with requirements set by law and they do not process any criminal offence data as defined by this legislation. So in terms of what special category of data they process, they're saying that the data will be held on the app on your phone which will include data concerning health, such as your 12 ID 19 test result and your isolation status, and venue details which are held only on your phone i.e. where you visited and you scanned the QR code as you've gone into the premises. However, they do point out that a venue could indicate your racial or ethnic origin, your political opinions, your religious or philosophical beliefs, your trade union membership, your sex life or sexual orientation. But they point out that all that data just remains on your phone. It's not transmitted to the main system. The department says that it processes the special category data in the substantial public interest. 
They say that we, the DHSC, considers that any automated decision-making is authorised by law, specifically Section 2A of the NHS Act 2006, which permits the Secretary of State to take such steps as he considers appropriate for the purpose of protecting public health. With regard to GDPR and that special processing, they say that as regards to Article 22 of GDPR, they note that any automated decisions based on special categories of personal data should be processed on the basis of Article 92G, being processing that is necessary for the reasons of substantial public interest, following the conditions in paragraph 6 of part 2 of Schedule 1 of the Data Protection Act 2018. In terms of accountability, they say that the Test and Trace Programme has a Data Protection Officer who reports directly to senior management, that the Department has developed and continues to develop the app in line with the Data Protection by Design and Default Principles, and they've provided more details in their published Data Protection Impact Assessment. The Data Protection Impact Assessment includes consideration of the risks that arise from processing and the controls that are in place that the Department maintains documentation and records of our processing activities, including reviewing them on a regular basis, that the Department ensures they have contracts in place with data processors and all suppliers, and that they ensure they have security measures in place and work with organisations, including the National Cyber Security Centre, to routinely review and improve these measures, and, importantly, that they review all of our controls and measures around accountability, regularly updating, improving and amending them as required. The Department says it will ensure that records are kept of all personal data processing activities and that these are provided to the ICO on request. To maintain their data privacy impact assessment and privacy notice, reviewing in the light of any changes to the app or processing data. Ensure that their data protection officer is involved in any review of the data protection impact assessment and any proposed changes to our processing personal data. And make sure that their internal processing controls are robust to ensure data is handled in compliance with all their obligations. In terms of data retention, they say that they ensure that the personal data held on the app user's phone is only retained for as long as necessary and that this period is aligned with government policy and the latest scientific environment. They say the processes to remove identifiers and reduce the identification from the data provided to the central system, which becomes the analytical data set. They set out the retention for this data in the data protection impact assessment. They do, however, add a footnote which says that further clarification on retention is expected as the TOB ID 19 public health emergency changes. In terms of those retention periods, test codes which link to a test result are held for 24 to 48 hours, daily codes used for contact tracing are held for 14 days, and details from QR scans for venue check-ins are held for 21 days. The analytical data set, which is anonymised, is going to hold organisations to account and so will be held for 8 years, and it also monitors communicable diseases, for example the TOB ID 19, and will be retained for five years if it contains personal data, which is not the case in this instance, or 20 years for anonymous data. If we receive any further updates from DHSC on how they're handling data or any extensions to this document that they've produced, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. Away from COVID now, we turn our attention to Brexit. We will, of course, remind you that in episode 119 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we had a whole episode devoted to Brexit and its effects upon GDPR and UK GDPR, and we would really strongly recommend that sometime over the Christmas break, you take 30 minutes or so to listen to that episode, because it does contain some really, really useful information. So that's episode 119. But back to current episode 123... And we have news that Facebook is planning to shift its UK-based user accounts to the data privacy agreements with its corporate headquarters in California. So instead of GDPR, they will in effect come under CCPA. 
However, bear in mind that because it's data relating to UK citizens, then UK GDPR will be the prevailing legislation which governs the use of that data, regardless of where in the world it's being stored. Facebook points out that its UK data is currently held at Facebook's European head offices in Dublin, but it's concerned about the potential for the UK to become a third country under GDPR and therefore is moving the data to the US. The move could mean that UK authorities are better able to recover data for criminal investigations thanks to the Cloud Act that has made cross-border data transfers to the US much easier. However, it has raised concerns that the US has much weaker data protection laws than Europe, and sources suggest Facebook is making the change partly because the EU privacy regime is among the world's strictest. However, Facebook claims that there will be no changes to its privacy controls or the services offered to UK users. A Facebook spokesperson said, like other companies, Facebook has had to make changes to respond to Brexit and will be transferring legal responsibilities and obligations for UK users from Facebook Ireland to Facebook Inc. There will be no changes to privacy controls or the services Facebook offers to people in the UK and the protections of UK GDPR will still apply. Facebook added that it will not change the ways in which it collects and processes user data, but said the decision was made due to remaining uncertainties over the Brexit transition. An ICO spokesperson said that the ICO was aware of Facebook's plans and will continue to engage with the company in the new year. Facebook's move follows a similar move by Google earlier this year. In February, it was reported that the Alphabet subsidiary was planning to migrate sensitive data to tens of millions of UK users. If we receive any further thoughts on this from Facebook or the ICO, we will bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now is the interview spot on the GDPR Weekly Show. So, it's a real pleasure to have Dr. Jackie Taylor with us today. Jackie, would you like to start just by telling my audience a little bit about your background and, and what Flying Binary does? I'd be delighted. Thanks for hosting me here, Keith, and hello to everybody. So, Flying Binary is a company that was formed in 2009 to deliver an inclusion agenda. And by that, I mean leave no one behind. So, our technology is deep technology. We'll talk about some of that today, I'm sure, because it's an area that fascinates Keith. But for if, if you read deep tech, I won't explain that. That will take me another five minutes. But things like artificial intelligence, the industrial internet of things, all those things are deep tech. And, and essentially what we do is we deliver that inclusion agenda um, d- directly to, uh, directly for and on behalf of Gen Alpha. Gen Alpha are between the ages of 16 and 60 today, although my youngest entrepreneur is actually four. Um, But it was originally built, the technology for Gen Z, Gen Z of 27 to 17. So between the ages of 27 to 16, that's who we build our technology for. And Gen Z are currently um, influencing 40% of the GDP across the world. And so they are who we serve. So delighted to be here. Excellent. Thanks, Jackie. So, I mean, there's obviously two main topics of conversation at the moment. One is Brexit or, you know, what people are seeing as Brexit. I know we actually left back in the end of January, but people are seeing the 31st of December as the deadline, which as this goes to broadcast, we're, what, less than a fortnight away from from, from mm-hmm. that. Um, and the other thing, obviously, is Top ID19 and the whole thing of people working from home and, and the effect that that's had and what people need to be thinking about. And then perhaps we'll broaden that out. To, I'm sure we will to talk about some border issues around GDPR and training and all, all that good stuff. So yeah, absolutely. Let's start with Brexit and the fact that you know we are potentially going to be ruled as not adequate in 12 days' time, um, and obviously that's a, a scary prospect to anyone who's got um, 
particularly if they've got clients in, in the EU, but also if they've got employees in the EU, or indeed they're just simply transferring data from one to the other. Yeah. Um, I've been talking in the last few weeks about that to my audience and, and trying to gender them up on what needs to be done and what safeguards they can try and put in place. Although, of course, we're still, unfortunately, we don't even know what the trade deal's going to look like as we as we sit at the moment, let alone what the data deal's going to look like. <laughs> but um, I appreciate just your thoughts on that and your input on that. Yeah, so first of all, I need to say that I'm one of the UK ICO's um, six data protection practitioners of excellence. That work has been uh, recognition for my work in the international setting of leveraging not just the GDPR, but the NIS directive because I'm a, um, I'm a cyber specialist. And so everything I say is based on that recognition from ICO and my work across the world in 180 countries, but I'm not the ICO. Um, I can tell you that obviously we don't have the adequate decision, as you've said, Keith, but I can tell you we prepared on a scenario base. So the UK is already prepared. And largely, um, those Brexit preparations, certainly for me, have been going on since um, since 2015, because I was part of the team that negotiated the changes to the Lisbon Treaty. Obviously, we failed, and here we are now. Um, so one of the things I would say, um, in terms of the adequacy decision, obviously, we will get one now, soon, like a few days or whatever, or we'll know on the 11 o'clock. It's really important that you know it's the 11 o'clock on the 31st of December. Don't wait for the clock to strike midnight. So you can have your, your um, celebrations end of transition at 11 o'clock and then New Year at 12. But what I'm saying to all of my clients and what we've been asked by our clients to do across the world is prepare for that adequacy decision not to be there. And I think that's the best advice I can I can give. Now, obviously, like with the introduction of GDPR, we were all busy running up to the 18th of May 2018 and then beyond. What we've seen is the regulators actually approaching this quite pragmatically, I believe, and, and understanding the pressure this puts business under. But there's no way the UK can affect that. That decision has to come um, from, uh, from the EU. Now, what I would say is, Really, it's likely that the standard contract clauses that the EU has put out as the model clauses will be similar to our ones. That's one thing that we, in our, for our clients, have made that assumption on and said that's part of our, our preparation. Phew, that's this, a relief because that's what I've been working on as well. <laughs> right, okay. So that's what we've done. And obviously we're, we're working at government level. So that's, that's been a, a pragmatic decision we've made because not preparing isn't an option. And, and we believe from a, the UK GDPR point of view, there'll be very little changes in the principles, in the individual uh, rights and the responsibility of data processes or data controls. So the bedrock of what you already have for your GDPR preparation, and I am making an assumption you're doing at least an annual review of that and you're contacting Keith if you can't do it yourself, because actually that's what we would do. Every time you renew your certificate, for, uh, for your um, DPO, then that's part of the review. And the biggest change we've prepared for is believing that um, appointing a supervisory authority is the biggest. Now that's reciprocal, of course, because some of our clients are actually in Europe. So we become the UK supervisory authority and they've got the equivalent one in there. And obviously around the, you mentioned. Um, and I think the, the, basically you can continue to rely on the SCCs you've got in place to transfer to sub-processes outside of the EEA. 
uh, after Brexit, because as far as we're concerned, what else could you do? Mm. And as ever, with everything you do for the GDPR, um, always document, you know, we've got our privacy notices are are ready to be changed. We've got the documentation. We've done the review. In the same way you prepared for the 18th of May, 2018, uh, 25th May, 2018, you do the same. So, and they get document all of that. Make sure, and this is a key one that I'm finding is a bit of an issue. Make sure that all of your staff who may not have been around from the introduction of GDPR are included in that because that can be a missing link. Um, and I think that, that you know, there, were, there are no public statements to back anything of what I've said, but, you know, I do the work that I do across the world and those are the preparations that we've made because not making a preparation is the wrong thing to do in my view yeah I, I think you're absolutely right you know i it's it's an old adage that i stick to is that you know to to fail to prepare is to prepare to fail you're uh, spot on with that absolutely and, 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 and you know i think that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's something i've been urging my my listeners to really sort of get on top of and i, I know a number of them are but it, you know those who haven't yet taken the plunge um please do because it's important that we get this into place as early in January as we can yes. for you. Yes. Um, yeah, you know. absolutely. And I think the thing about it is start making the preparations. Don't everybody panic listening to this thinking we haven't done it. Actually, you know, if it's a question of getting Keith in, make a contact, send him an email, you've started the process. In the same way we did for it being mandated, make sure the process is underway and then, you know, document everything, as I say. And uh, as always, and this is to get that underway, um, listen out for the contact details at the end of this article and and as you know we always repeat them several times during during the episode um so that's brexit jackie i'd say the other big issue obviously is top id 19 and thankfully you know we've across the world now uh we, we've got vaccines developed in record time and you know here yeah. in the uk i think we can be very proud of the fact that we were the first country to actually get a vaccine out there and indeed this week we've seen people television pictures of people receiving their first vaccinations which is fantastic but what it has led to obviously as well is a whole shift in culture because suddenly people have realized that you know there is a real benefit to having people working from home and what everybody thought would be the big productivity drop of people working from home actually hasn't happened and I think that those of us who perhaps have foreseen people working from home for a number of years have believed that but we always expected the transition to be gradual and not over the course of a week in March when suddenly everybody flew into a panic. Indeed. But it's very important, obviously, that GDPR and more importantly, um, cyber security and data security doesn't get lost in that whole muddle. Um, you know, I get I, I, one of the things I've been relaying to my listeners pretty well every week since people start working from home is people working from home should be using a laptop that you provide and they should be using that only for work. They shouldn't mm-hmm. be letting their children do their homework on it in the evening, or they shouldn't be using it to, to so, yes. you know, everybody's going to use social media a little bit, but they shouldn't be using it to, to spend hours on Facebook either, because mm-hmm. that's not a safe place to be as far as work data is concerned. So yeah. just to get your input on that, really, Jackie. Well, um, I, I came back in February. Um, I actually flew from the Middle East, which is where I delivered the G20 plan. I'm an expert advisor to the G20, the new global plan. I delivered that um, in the Middle East and then flew to America in order to do my federal responsibility. 
uh, only to skid back into the UK two hours before lockdown. When I delivered that global plan for the G20 is 60% of the world's GDP, I had no idea about the pandemic and nor had anybody. But we were looking at a gradual change, but not as gradual as perhaps you were thinking, Keith. Within three years, we were looking at that transition and right. um, moving towards a tipping point. Uh, we did not expect three months, which is the reality of it. And um, it turns out the plan I delivered was a COVID plan to you. What can you say about that? That's just, you know, probably 30 odd years of work in IT, uh, managing risk and and knowing that we needed to cater for all scenarios. But it was a shock to me as much to anybody that the pandemic arrived and that plan was a COVID plan. So that's allowed us to accelerate a lot of the arrangements. But the realities that we face are one billion, billion people, additional people work from home. That has translated our digital economies into the future digital economies right now. Um, and so uh, navigating that journey has been complicated. However, if you are already on this path of looking at regulation as an enabler, which at Flying Binary we do, we delivered our first reg tech service for the payment services directive. Hello to any of the listeners who know that what that is. That was regulatory change across the European banking system. And um, we delivered that in 2009. And we put regulation at core delivery mechanism for all of our deals. So we see regulation as a, as a lever and as a competitive advantage. But the reality of being of those companies that don't having a billion additional people to deal with, um, quite frankly, the only organisations that were prepared for that level of change at that pace were the cyber criminals. That's the reality. They work from home all the time. They're mobile. I mean, they they attempt to be untrackable. So they were prepared, and it's been it's been a you know a, a cyber fest, in not in a good way since then. And obviously, those of us who work in the industry been more than busy. But it does actually allow you an opportunity to reassess what you did for your GDPR preparation, what your annual review does, because really the productivity hasn't dropped. Like he said, you know, we've we've worked um, at Flying Binary this way for 11 years, so not no surprise there. In fact, we can demonstrate 300% increase in productivity when we use this model. But it does actually change the face where you provide everything, and tech has become the lever you have to wield and so it's that element of it that's concerned me the most and the cyber preparations that you know we see many of the big companies falling foul of all the time but there was very little understanding of how poor that it was across the world now as part of the world economic forum work i do um we we don't have data for most of the world's cyber preparedness, but we do know that the pandemic has been the equivalent of what we call a zero day exploit, a complete unknown landing on our laps that we have to respond to at a global level. That's the first one we've ever had in the technology landscape. So not to underestimate the impact of it. So if those of you who are listening are going, it's been a huge impact, Jackie, I know that, but see the positives in that it has allowed you, I did a, uh, a keynote to the, the resilience and continuity industry in November. And what I said to them was, see how that has allowed you to understand the fragility of your preparation. And so nobody can be under any illusions of how prepared they are. And, and then people ask me all the time, well, how long is it going to go on for? I can tell you that my diary is booked till December 2023. There are very few off-soil 
at appointments in that landscape. I'm not saying this is with us to the end of December 2023, but my work tells me I'm not moving off this soil in the UK before then. And, I, and my work at the United Nations with 180 countries has not required me to move either. So don't think of this as a short term, let's do it in the next two months. Prepare yourself to embrace the idea. This is an actual opportunity um, to, to look at how you might have um, the, what's the fragility of what you've seen in your organizations as a, an understanding of how you can be more competitive, a part of your, you know, your USP, your unique selling point. And regulation, as far as I can see, is that lever that the pandemic has actually put a huge spotlight on. And, and so from that point of view, there are many positives, but it's all about that continual preparedness. Like I say, I'd expect all of you listening to it doing at least an annual review. I'd expected, I've said to the continuity industry, if every three months you're not reviewing the impact, I would think you're falling behind. So that's been my work across, obviously, the world in this unbelievably different and unexpected situation we find ourselves in. And I would say that's not really, that's nothing to do with individual nation states. That's true across them all. I, uh, that's really interesting to know. And again, one of the things which um, I've been pushing out to my listeners, and, and apologies to regular listeners who have heard me say this several times over the last few weeks now, is also thinking about the paper documents that people are working with at home and yep. make sure that they're not just putting them out into their domestic rubbish um, because, you know, that is a data breach. And unfortunately, there are people with sad enough lives who will go around looking in dustbins to see what they can find. And, yep. and, you know, so at the very least, provide your staff with a crosscut threader. If you're not going to do that, then provide some courier mechanism to get the paperwork back to your office or a central location where it can be threaded. But it, yeah, no, and in fact, we've um, at home put ourselves a wormer in the garden and the worms are eating all the confidential stuff. Because right. We tear all that up, shred it and then put it into the wormery. And that was my seven year old um, great nephew who came up with that idea. I'm like, that's a good idea. If we need to be able to just do a few things, we'll tip it in the wormery. And I think you do have to think again, like we all did when we prepared for the GDPR the very first time. We looked at every, we looked in every corner, we looked at every part of the process, we looked at all of our resources, all of our people. This pandemic should have caused that same sort of level of spotlight on it all, mainly because the criminals themselves are prepared. So we have to make that assumption. And one of the things I said to Keith was I would um, I would share with you is the World Economic Forum research before the pandemic. Um, and in fact, that crosses 141 of the countries that I work in. And small businesses, on average, are the biggest target. And um, they lose, on average, because of these data breaches and everything that goes with them, or cyber events and everything goes with them, on average, 12% of turnover. So we see the big numbers in the press. Um, but the reality of it is it's 12% of your turnover you're putting at risk across 141 countries in the world. So wherever your listeners are, you may be on, on some of the countries that are not on that list, but the large majority of the listeners, that's the risk that they're carrying. It's good to put a number on it, and even cyber insurance is not going to protect you for that because there's limits when you have been complicit in, sure. in that breach. That, that's, that's really, really good, useful information. And uh, I just say I'm loving the wormery idea as well. I, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's great. Um, <laughs> Turning, turning now to, to our listeners in the US, um, 
obviously one of the key things which has been a concern to them in the last few months has been the the SREMS 2 ruling, um, which, you know, effectively drove the tartan horses through the um, EU-US privacy shield, as far as adequacy was concerned. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you know, a number of them are now moving towards using standard contractual clauses. Um, where do you see that going? What, what, what do you think, A, short term, I guess, and B, sort of medium to longer term, what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I'm going to sort of loop back a little bit to the early part of the conversation on Brexit, because, of course, that many of the U.S. processors are on soil in Ireland, which gives them an on-soil yeah. uh, uh, activity there. Um, Google obviously made its arrangements in, in November. Yesterday, Facebook announced its arrangements to move out of Ireland for U.K. data and move it back to the U.S. The reality of it is um, we fly binary supplies, the cloud service, the secure cloud service for Her Majesty's government. And we took a, um, a strategic decision. One safe harbor was no longer in place. And prior to the privacy shield being put in place, I could see no mechanism for that being a reliable um, way of approaching cloud um, going forward. I'm one of the cloud 100 that guides governments across the world about how they deploy on cloud. And, and if you're listening to this thinking, oh, cloud, that's not me. I'll be really, really clear. I say this across the world. No cloud, no artificial intelligence. It doesn't run without it. So it's the direction of travel we're all heading. From a US point of view, though, the SHREMS 2 judgment effectively, as you say, drove through the privacy. Of, I would argue that the safe harbor events were that event. And there was a lot of hope that that would be enough, but it isn't. However, when you think about the CCPA in California, I find that very interesting because lots of what we're talking about here around these judgments are to do with the fact that our legislative and regulatory environment isn't fit for our online world. And, our, you know, we can't ever expect to keep our, our regulatory and legislative oversight in place with it because we'll never catch up. Technology moves much too fast. So it's very interesting to me for the moves that California made, because from a US point of view, if I, I know from my own work, particularly in the financial sector, if I can get something landed in California, it effectively allows me to land it across all states. And that's because all states consume tech from California. So I think that we, we should expect at some point, and I'm not going to say soon because I think the new president's got um, other priorities possibly than this one. We should expect soon that that is a signal change. The, the move that California's made is a signal change for the rest of the US. And again, like we said, you know, about the adequacy decision um, in the EU and, and the UK not having that yet, don't leave it until somebody decides this is a point for you to prepare. And, and, I, and I think that that's really key. So I talked earlier about the G20 presidency this year and delivering the, the new global plan, but I actually worked on it the previous year where Japan had the presidency. And one of the interventions that Japan made is at a national level, they've introduced their own regulatory regime um, that it, it closely follows or closely enough follows that Japan has been given an adequacy decision from a, an EU point of view. So that's in Asia where that um, piece yeah. is. And as a result of that work in 2018, I convened a meeting for 147 countries to discuss that because people were looking at the fact legal and regulatory systems were like a patchwork of the world. And actually, technology was just rolling through all of that. 
And so they were looking for a way of doing that. And essentially, I've written an international standard to explain how that regulatory and legislative regime across the world without anything like CCPA or GDPR can actually work. So I would argue that it's time to prepare now, assuming that that adequacy arrangement is not going to be restated, or if it is, it's going to be in a different way. And I would look to the arrangements that we've made in uh, the EU GDPR, the UK GDPR, the CCPA, and, and say that's the direction of travel. And so based on that, SHREMS 2 is a, is a, a you know, raising a flag that time is now. And, and particularly when I talk about the G20, 60% of the world's GDP, if that GDP moves in that direction, everything in that direction is the just sheer reality of it. And technology is accelerating, not in any way um, going to pile backwards. So that's why ICO gave me the award, I believe, because I've taken that and made that a commercial proposition. And so how many organizations listening to this, you know, how many of your listeners can say, actually, we'll stand forward. This is part of our values. It's part of, you know, not just privacy preserving pieces of it, but the security minded piece of it. We're a business that you can look to our values because this is what we do. And essentially what Flying Binary do is in delivering its tech is create new trust models for organizations, for governments, for nations. And that means that that's a new arena of trust in the world. And so I think the SHREMS 2 decision should be a wake-up call for all. Um, but obviously, as a flying banner, we've made completely different arrangements now. SHREMS 2 has happened because the, 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 the risk we plan for is now real. Great. Yeah, that's, really, that's, again, really, really, really good information. Lots of really good nuggets. Um, and I guess, you know, what we, we, we were chatting before we came on air about what, one of the things that's really pleasing about GDPR is, is and you mentioned about Japan there, is, is the mm. number of countries around the world who are basing their data protection legislation around GDPR. I mean, I'm thinking about New yeah. Zealand, for example, which has recently yeah. sort of jumped, jumped online with that. And yeah. I, I think that's a very welcome space. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do, do, you think, do you think eventually we will we come to a worldwide common standard or is that? being too uh, wishful thinking no well i mean i've written the internal standard that is is informally based on it's not it's not as comprehensive gdpr because of course the legislative regulatory settings across the world are not the same um, but we've had buy-in for that international standard for 100 from 147 countries and that's now been in place since april of this year so just about when the pandemic hit, when everybody needed the guidance, that's when we published. So that was timing of well, divine nature. It wasn't my timing. It took me a long time to broker that consensus. And essentially, I think what the reason for that is it's, it's not just a nation state thing, but organizations are understanding that technology is actually the enabler to the new businesses. And one of the things that I talk about when, when, I, do, when I do these negotiations is I say, People want me to quantify what that means, you know, so, so, okay, so we do what you're saying, Jackie, and then what? And I have um, 28, over 28,000 organizations that have taken this route with, with Flying Binary. And what we found is they found a return on investment, an ROI of two times multiplier. Whatever they've invested in taking this uh, regulatory approach like I say, not just privacy preserving, no security minded, it's a combination. Um, they've, they've, uh, they've made their money back two times multiplier and then got the added trust um, of customers or, or their own governments because they've taken a route, which is forward thinking. They're regarded as forward thinking companies. 
And the best example we've had is six, 60 tons, six zero wow. times ROI. Huge. Now, obviously, that's, there's competition going on now. People want to beat that. Um, but the reality of it is, it depending on, and that was all before the pandemic. So now we've had the whole of, of, of the marketplaces, the digital economies across the world disrupted. I do think 60 times is, is going to be a low number now, mm. because actually now we're looking at, a, in a globalized way, how we'll do it. <clears throat> and so maybe you do, you know, depending on your setting, I know you've got listeners from all over the world, that GDPR might be a step too far. But the, the realities of it, the core principles that are in for privacy preserving and security minded elements are the core principles that 147 nations are based in their future. And that's because we're in increasingly globalized world. You know, we can sit in any one nation and be selling to another 68 mm. because that's the nature of the world uh, and so i think that really from a point of view of going forward that is the landscape i would say you know the uk gdpr the eu gdpr are you know the gold standard of course ccpa in an american context is mm. too but but that doesn't mean that the other things and, and japan obviously and what they've done but it doesn't mean that the other things are less than that it's just that they were the first and I'm sure there'll be, as we evolve this whole landscape, we will go away from legislation, because it's a very blunt instrument, and, and, a, and away a little bit from regulation. And the standards that will sit around this are going to be the instrument. From my point of view, that's where I see um, the, the nations I work with moving towards standards, because they can be made freely available. You can have, you know, you can build around it. Regulation takes its time. How long did it take us to do GDPR? Four long years. Um, so, but standards can be developed much quicker than that. And the one that I mentioned that I launched in, in April of this year took me about 18 months to actually get that in place. And um, there's a British standard that I've also written on the whole data sharing, because this is a more complicated area for technology, that is I'm now fast-tracking to an international standard. I expect to get that, that into an international standard within months because that's the appetite across the world for being able to share how people are doing. There's, I would say it's less of a competitive landscape for this work now. It's more of a collaborative one. Excellent. Well, we, I, we've had a really interesting, wide-ranging discussion, I think, today. And, and <laughs> I, I, hopefully the listeners have found it really, really useful. I'm sure they have, but there's been lots of little nuggets to pick up there. Um, Jackie, I... I'd love to have you back on the podcast at some point in the new year, if you're agreeable to that. And Yes, I'd love to do that. I've got something very special happening in the new year, which I think your listeners will be very interested in. So, so maybe we can even do an exclusive and I can tell your listeners first. That would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and B, if, if my listeners want to find out more about, or, you know, want to get in touch with Flying Binary, how, how, how do they get in touch with you? So um, I've done a little bit of a, a special for you all because I think one of the things that we have in this conversation, uh, not all of us are interested, not everybody across the world is interested in this. I can never imagine why this is not a more fascinating subject. To me it is, I know to Keith it is, and possibly to all of you that are listening it is, but actually it's very hard to translate what we've heard today into real things that people can understand and care about. So what I've done is I've put together a downloadable, which we host on Flying Binary's own technology. So there's no chance for the cyber criminal getting involved in the loop. And I never share this online directly. This is only shared with curated audiences like Keith. But I've put together a, a download for you all to actually have 
the global data, the numbers around the risk that is being sat around the world and, and how that risk um, uh, equates in different countries. And I've done something a little bit different because we have talked a little bit about it today, not necessarily in the context. It's rare that I come onto um, a podcast like this where people even know the issues there, but our homes are are one of the key attack vectors mm. for the cyber criminals during this pandemic. So I've done you the top 10 risks in your home oh, and showed you which ones need to be addressed as a little extra to the World Economic Forum work. And I've done that as a downloadable and I've called it WEF, World Economic Forum, dot uh, Jackie. I'm a Jacqueline, so my Jackie is J-A-C-Q-U-I dot online because it's me online. So that's that URL that's hosted on Flying Binary Tech and that's wef.jackie.online. You can access that now. I've made it available before the podcast. That'll give you the data of the global perspective. It'll also give you the, the data around your home so you can get one step ahead of the criminals and what they're looking to, to um, attack. Uh, but also what I would say is this is a curated conversation. Keith obviously looks after his audience. That is the downloadable for you to share. So that is not publicly is the only thing I ask, but within your companies, with your suppliers, with your customers, do share that. And we'll let's get this information across the world so that people know what the risk we are. And it makes a better judgment call. And if you're trying to get some of this activity we talked about move forward, either because of SHREMS 2, because of Brexit, um, then that will help you put a, a global context and that will, will make it um, really visible that this is a global problem. And I would, I would say people have raised um, hundreds of thousands of dollars on the basis of this that I've given away because actually it gives them a differentiator. It, it, it looks at, from an organization point of view, of understanding their place in a global marketplace. And, and it really is an enabler. So that was my gift to your listeners. Merry Christmas. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, very, very Merry Christmas to you too. And, and that's what hopeful was that we all have a, a safe 2021 and a better 2021 than, than this year has been. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I admit that's probably a fairly low bar, but let's <laughs> hope. Totally... Well, I think we being, being um, it's a moment in time. You know, uh, I worked with, I've worked with Tim Berners-Lee, who founded the World Wide Web since 2009, the 12th of March, 2009. 20th anniversary of the web and we have never had a situation like this in the whole 30 odd years since the web was founded and I would think those of us that are doing something with uh, understanding the opportunity that comes in will be the the rewards are are in 2021 there's no doubt in my mind because of course I've got the global data so I think it's really important that you stay tuned to what Keith's presenting because this is a foundation for not just change but of opportunity as well so I wish you again Merry Christmas. Thanks Daffy. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. As we record this and go to broadcast on the 20th of December, there is still no trade deal between the EU and the UK. And therefore, it has to be the working assumption that come the 1st of January 2021, or in fact, come 11 p.m. on the 31st of December here in the UK, the UK will cease to be an adequate country as regards to 
GDPR and will become a third country. What is therefore important is that as early as possible in the new year that you get standard contractual clauses in place with any data processors that you are using in Europe or conversely if you're in Europe listening to this and you have data being posted in UK that again you have some standard contractual clauses in place there or some binding corporate rules. We're totally geared up here at the GDPR Weekly Show to help any organisation whether it's based in the UK or in Europe get abreast of these changes and to get the standard contractual clauses or binding corporate rules in place with a minimum delay. And so if you would like our help on that, please do contact us via any of the contact details which are coming up at the end of this article. Bear in mind that doing nothing is not an option because if you continue to transfer data without either standard contractual clauses or binding corporate rules in place, then you will in theory be committing an offence under GDPR and you could find yourself being levied with penalties by not just the ICO, but any European data protection authority. So if you are in that situation, first of all, do go back and listen to episode 119 of the CGP Weekly Show, and then do contact us via these contact details that are coming up, and one of our team will be delighted to help you. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. To Ireland now, and Ireland's Data Protection Commission, the DPC, has finally issued the details of the fine which it's levying on to Twitter, and it's levying a fine of €450,000 for failing to promptly declare and properly document a data breach under GDPR. Regular listeners to GDPR Weekly Show will know we've been following this case since its inception and the decision's noteworthy as it's the first such cross-border GDPR decision by the Irish DPC, which is the lead EU privacy supervisor for a number of tech giants, including Facebook, WhatsApp, Google, Apple and LinkedIn. In a statement, the DPC said, The DPC's investigation commenced in January 2019 following receipt of a breach notification from Twitter and the DPC has found that Twitter infringed Article 33.1 and 33.5 of the GDPR in terms of a failure to notify the breach on time to the DPC and a failure to adequately document the breach. The DPC has imposed an administrative fine of €450,000 on Twitter as an effective, proportionate and dissuasive measure. The GDPR requires most breaches of personal data to be notified to the relevant supervisor or authority within 72 hours of the controller becoming aware of the breach. The regulation also requires they document what data was involved and how they responded to the security incident in order that the relevant data supervisor can check against compliance. In this case, Twitter was found to have failed on both counts. In reply, Damien Kieran, Twitter's Chief Privacy Officer and Global Data Protection Officer, said, Twitter worked closely with the Irish Data Protection Commission to support their investigation, we have a shared commitment to online security and privacy and we respect the IDPC's decision which relates to a failure in our instant response process. An unanticipated consequence of staffing between Christmas Day 2018 and New Year's Day resulted in Twitter notifying the IDPC outside of the 72-hour statutory notice period. We have made changes that all incidents following this have been reported to the DPC in a timely fashion. We take responsibility for this mistake and we remain fully committed to protecting the privacy and data of our customers, including through our work to quickly and transparently inform the public of issues that occur. We appreciate the clarity this decision brings to companies and consumers around GDPR's breach notification requirements. Our approach to these incidents will remain one of transparency and openness. Because of the cross-border nature of this judgment, Ireland circulated its decision around the other European data protection authorities. 
and a lot of them were surprised by the low level of the penalty, because bear in mind that the penalty can be up to 4% global turnover, of course. It's important to realise that when this was first circulated amongst European data protection authorities, the DPC was proposing an even smaller fine of between 135,000 and 275,000 euros. But intervention from the other EU DPAs under Article 65 of GDPR forced Ireland to increase the size of the penalty. The other contentious issue was quite who was the data controller and who was the data processor, with the DPC accepting Twitter Ireland as the data controller and Twitter Inc. as the processor, a destination that seemed intended to reduce Twitter's liability. And just to put this fine into context, the fine represents 0.016% of Twitter's revenue in 2019. Or to put that another way, the profit they earn in one and a half hours pays that fine. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. Back to the UK now and details of a major data breach at energy provider People's Energy who have contacted all of its 270,000 current customers following a data breach. Co-founder Taryn Sode said that the entire database had been stolen by hackers and included information on not just current customers but previous customers too. The data stolen included names, addresses, dates of birth, phone numbers, tariff and energy meter IDs. But with the exception of 15 small business customers, no financial information has been accessed. The company emphasised that those 15 small businesses have been contacted separately. Most of those affected are unlikely to suffer any direct financial risk. However, People's Energy have correctly warned all their customers to be aware of phishing attempts, i.e. emails that appear to be from People's Energy, because they now have your details, when in fact they're from a fraudster. It's understood that the company have contacted the ICO and they've also contacted the National Centre for Cyber Security, the energy regulator Ofgem and the police. People's Energy, based in Edinburgh, also has customers in England and Wales. Ms Sode said that it was investigating the breach and had called in an independent expert, but so far had no information about the identity of the hackers. People's Energy was founded in August 2017 with a commitment to sustainable energy and returning 75% of all its profits to its customers. This is a big blow in every way, Ms Sode said. We want people to feel they can trust us. This was not part of the plan. We're upset and sorry. The company has set up a helpline for customers. So if you are a customer of People's Energy and you may have been affected, you can contact them either on helpline at peoplesenergy.co.uk or by telephone on 0131 378 2357. That's 0131 378 2357. The lines are open 9am to 8pm weekdays and 9am to 5pm at weekends. It's obviously very early in this investigation and when we receive any update either from People's Energy or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. To Norwich now and a timely reminder that data breaches don't just have to be electronic data, they can be paper data too. The Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital has launched an investigation after personal details of more than 30 patients were found in the street by a member of the public. On Sunday, December the 13th, a mother of three from Sproulston came across a wad of A4 papers on the ground at the junction of Aylstrom Road and Burners Street in Mile Cross. The woman, who does not wish to be named, picked up the documents and on closer inspection found the personal details of 36 different people who'd attended the Norfolk Norwich University Hospital in recent weeks. Amongst the details contained in the documents were the names, states of birth, details of medical conditions and reasons for hospital admittance for each of the people listed. Not wanting them to be found by anybody else, the woman kept hold of the documents and took them home with her and later informed the hospital of her discovery. 
She said, I know if I had family members that were seriously ill, I'd be distraught to learn their details were just lying there in the street. I'm not quite sure how long it had been there for, but it was just lying on the ground, so anybody could have found it. The documents contain intimate details about medical conditions people were suffering from, including a man with a hernia and a woman who was struggling to swallow. A spokesperson for the hospital confirmed that an investigation had been launched into the instance which is being treated as a serious data breach. They said, We take the protection of personal information extremely seriously and have launched an internal investigation as a matter of urgency. Alex Stewart, Chief Executive of Housewatch Norfolk, said, Obviously it's very concerning if the personal details have been left in the middle of the street either by accident or design. On the whole, data protection at NNUH is very good, and incidents like this are very rare, but from our perspective they should not be happening at all. We hope a full and proper investigation is carried out. We understand that the hospital has notified the ICO, although we've not been able to get a comment from the ICO before we've gone to broadcast, but if we get any update either from the hospital or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you at the earliest possible moment in future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay home, stay safe. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 115 of the show, we brought you details of a data breach at Moray's Ambulance Station within the Scottish Ambulance Service. This week it emerged that Moray Member of Parliament Douglas Ross is seeking an update from the Ambulance Service after again being contacted by the whistleblower who first revealed the data breach. The Scottish Ambulance Service launched a probe when the matter was first highlighted, revealing that the highly personal information about employees had been found within the garage in Forest. The organisation placed to carry out a thorough investigation and provide support to the affected staff at Aldin and Forest Ambulance Stations. However, the same whistleblower has now contacted their MP, claiming that they have had little help from bosses since the incident was exposed and have had no update on the investigation. In a letter to the Scottish Ambulance Service, the MP says, The whistleblower advises that the Scottish Ambulance Service are not providing ongoing support for those involved, and they, the staff, have not been advised of any update with regards to the investigation, or even when they can expect a conclusion and outcome. The MP goes on to ask that can he have a categorical assurance that the staff involved are and will be offered ongoing support, and also that he'd be obliged to know if he could be advised when the outcome of the internal investigation will be known. In the letter to the MP, the whistleblower states, in the Press and Journal, local newspaper, SAS commented that they are providing ongoing support to all concerned. This is untrue. Apart from the initial letter informing us that our personal files have been involved in the data breach, we've not heard from SAS again. We did have an opportunity for a 15-minute appointment with the SAS data protection officer at the start, but have heard nothing since. There's been no update on the status of investigation or when to expect a conclusion. No support has been offered by Scottish Ambulance. He added, We'd received an email from an administrator in Aberdeen who had been tasked to scan our files and email us the contents, which to many has caused a lot of further distress, realising the depth of confidential information contained in their files, which have been allowed to circulate within the area. For the Scottish Ambulance Service, a spokesperson said, The investigation into this incident is nearing its conclusion and is currently being taken through our internal governance processes. All staff affected will receive an update on the final investigation shortly and any recommendations and remedial actions will be fully implemented. The Scottish Ambulance Service continues to support staff in a number of ways, including local line management support, support from human resources, access to wellbeing services and advice from a specialist data protection officer. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. To Sweden now, and a Swedish university has been fined 550,000 Swedish kroner, which is just short of £50,000, for storing sensitive personal information in the cloud without sufficiently protecting the data. Umea University in the mid-northern area of Sweden 
violated GDPR by failing to properly secure data related to a research study on male sexual health, the Swedish Data Protection Authority has ruled. A research group had gained access to preliminary police reports concerning cases of male rape, a statement from the regulator reads. On receiving the files, the university group scanned and stored them digitally in a US cloud storage service, despite the institution informing factory members via its intranet that sensitive files should not be stored in the cloud. The reports contained information about the suspicion of crime, name, personal identifying number and contact details as well as sensitive data about the person's sexual life and overall health. In another incident, the research group sent an email to the police requesting further information with one of the stand reports attached as a reference. The research group later repeated this action, despite the fact that the police pointed out the inappropriateness in sending sensitive material in unencrypted emails. Linda Hamidi, who led the investigation by the Swedish State Protection Authority, said that a cloud service and the way the university uses it does not provide sufficient protection for this type of personal data. The report reads, The events show that the university has not taken necessary measures to ensure a level of security appropriate to and in relation to the risk. Yemei University was also at fault for failing to report the data breach under GDPR laws. The report adds the Swedish Data Protection Authority also criticised the university for failing to report the incident as a data breach. The controller is obliged to notify the DPR data breaches and furthermore to present to us what has been done to mitigate the effects of the incident and to prevent similar incidents happening in the future. To Canada now, and Canadian credit union group Desjardins has been criticised by the National Privacy Watchdog over last year's data breach, which affected millions of customers. Releasing his report on the incident earlier this week, Privacy Commissioner Daniel Theron said the organisation had not paid enough attention to protecting the personal data in its care. He found that a road employee had for more than two years siphoned sensitive personal information selected from customers who had purchased or received products through Desjardins. In some cases, this included first and last names, dates of birth, social insurance numbers, street addresses, telephone numbers, email addresses and transaction histories, leading to the potential for identity theft. Mr Theron told a press conference, Canadians expecting banking information to have a higher level of protection, given its sensitivity. We recognise that Caesar said and done for a financial institution, given the amount of personal data it owned and the level of complexity of its systems, however, an organisation such as Desjardin has the means to comply with the law. Mr Theron's report found that Desjardin had failed to meet several of its obligations under federal privacy law. This included failure to ensure proper implementation of its policies and procedures for managing personal information, poor access control and data segregation in databases and directories, inadequate employee training and a lack of proper procedures for the periodic destruction of personal information. Desjardin agreed to the recommendations to improve information security and the protection of personal data and has committed to provide progress reports every six months and to hire external auditors to assess its measures. Ultimately, we are satisfied with the overall mitigation scheme that Desjardin is providing to affected individuals, which goes beyond what we have seen from other organisations, said Mr Theron. In its response, Desjardin said it had cooperated fully with the regulatory authorities and has developed strategies that are in line with their recommendations. These strategies have already been implemented or are being implemented right now, it said. Desjardin added that the financial regulator also found the changes made to be a clear improvement and that its solvency, capital base, liquidity and profitability are not being called into question. It said the Privacy Commission state that the breach affected 9.7 million individuals. This number corresponds to the number of active and inactive files that the ill-intentioned ex-employee had access to within Desjardins' banking systems. These files belonged to individuals who at that time were class members or were clients with a credit card or in-store financing, as well as former members and clients with these financing products, as announced in December 2019. 
The information held by Jessica Dean suggests that the personal information of 4.2 million banking members who had active accounts at the time may have been disclosed to a third party. There is nothing that confirms Jets employees shared anyone else's personal information with third parties. Jessica Dean began offering protection to all these individuals in December 2019. Jessica Dean said it had made great strides in information security over the past 18 months and will continue to apply international best practice. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. And as this is our last episode before Christmas and indeed our last episode of 2020, we thought we'd have a light-hearted look at whether Santa Claus or Father Christmas falls foul of GDPR. So let's look at the information. Does he have consent? Well, we could assume that letters being sent up chimneys by children or given to Santa Claus in a shopping mail are indications of membership of the Santa Claus Club for Children. And so, by any of those methods, we think that yes, people are consenting to having contact from Santa Claus and for him holding their information. After all, he needs to hold the nice list as well as the naughty list. Equally, given that Santa's origins are believed to be back with St Nicholas, who was a saint with Turkish origin, then it's fair to assume that Santa Enterprises is a religious or spiritual membership body and therefore it's reasonable to argue that Santa's acting during his legitimate activities. Obviously he needs appropriate safeguards in place but he can operate without consent under Article 61F legitimate interest. But of course we just have to bear in mind he's dealing with children's data so we hope he's keeping it really securely. And we're sure he is. Because who's ever seen a list they sent to Santa Claus end up in the wrong hands? With Santa Claus's net worth estimated at approximately $51 trillion, we can estimate that he's made around $25.5 million a year for the last 2,000 Christmases. Therefore, he would be subject to a 4% fine of annual global turnover of around $1 million if he was in the event of a data breach. However, with nobody having ever located his North Pole workshop and seemingly no internet connections for cyber attackers to exploit, the chances of a data breach are of course remote. Bear in mind as well that considering Santa Claus enters the houses without consent, and maintains an unpaid workforce, GDPR is probably low down on his list of priorities. We'd like to thank you all for listening to the GDPR Weekly Show during this difficult year for everyone. We wish you all a safe and healthy Christmas, a healthy New Year, and we look forward to seeing you back here in our first episode of the New Year on the 3rd of January 2021. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe. Stay home, save lives. Until next time, bye-bye. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production.